Hi folks, Steve Shepard here. As a lot of you know, I spend a lot of my time in that weird world of emerging technologies. On this podcast, I've talked about things like quantum computing, cloud, the internet of things, big data, edge computing, and a few others, mainly because they're new, they're important, and they're in that weird space between being the stuff of science fiction and playing an active and important role in human society. So today, I want to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence, sometimes called AI. AI is one of those weird technologies that I can describe with a straight face as being unbelievably advanced technology, yet a toddler can run rings around it. So with that weird intro, let me get into it. Years ago, when I taught basic data communications courses, I used to use a video in class. I think it was produced by the Smithsonian that really drove home the incredible power of the human mind and the equally incredible power and limits of machine intelligence. The video opened with a toddler sitting on the floor surrounded by wooden blocks. Very matter-of-factly, she picked up the blocks one by one and stacked them into a tower, all the while observed by scientists from behind a mirror. Their goal was to simply observe how the toddler went through the simple task of stacking blocks and then teach a robot how to do the same thing. How hard could it be? Well, little did they know, the task would prove to be almost impossible. So let's dissect the job at hand. First, we have to locate the blocks, meaning not only do we have to be able to see them, we also have to relate each block's position to the position of the first block in the stack and to the position of all the other blocks so that we can decide which one to grab next. Now, for the prehensile human hand with its jointed flexible digits combined with our binocular vision, this is a really simple task. I mean, a toddler can do it. But we haven't yet invented robotic hands that are as capable as human hands. The blocks, remember, can be positioned on the floor in an infinite number of orientations. You know, they can be rotated in a variety of ways. Well, what the scientists finally did was to give up on the idea of fingers and flexible wrists. Instead, they gave the robot hands that looked like big foam-lined lobster claws, which basically gave the robot the ability to pick things up. Now, the binocular vision was another thing. They ended up having to create essentially an XY grid on the ground and then assign a coordinate value to the location of the first block. You remember from trigonometry or geometry or whatever it was, X equals plus 5, Y equals plus 7. Well, that sort of worked, but think about it. If the toddler's leg accidentally bumps the first block and moves it a few inches, hey, no big deal. Her brain just adapts and she moves her hand a little farther to stack the next block. But that was a showstopper for the robot. It didn't have the ability to adjust because it was never programmed for that possibility. Anyway, they worked on this problem for weeks and weeks, making incremental progress, until they finally had all of the physical and programming challenges resolved. Or at least they thought they did. The time had come. They started the program, turned on the robot, and held their breath. The robot, it was really just an arm on a heavy base, reached out, found a block, hovered over it, descended, picked it up, and then swiveled over to the place it decided to stack the blocks, raised the arm to a place about three feet above the precise XY coordinate that it had been programmed to choose, 
and then dropped the block. It then grabbed a second block, and it returned to the XY grid location that it had chosen, and it dropped the second block from a point about an inch or so lower than the first, but still about three feet off the ground. It repeated this process about five times before the scientists finally just threw their hands up in the air in frustration and stopped the program. It and they had failed. But actually, they hadn't. The program executed perfectly. It did exactly what it was designed to do. So what was wrong? Well, this is where we start to see the vast chasm that exists between the human and the digital mind. You see, the toddler has an advantage that the machine doesn't. Throughout her short life, she had picked up and dropped countless toys and watched as they crash-landed on the ground. Once she started walking, she fell down innumerable times, either plopping down on her bum or pitching forward onto all fours. Her parents occasionally played a game with her that made her squeal with delight. They'd hold her tightly against their chests and then pretend to let her fall, stopping at the last minute. Again, she would say. So they did it, over and over. And she learned. What was it she learned? Well, she learned about gravity. She learned about 32 feet per second per second. Now, she didn't know physics yet, and she didn't know the term gravity. But she understood the concept. If you release an object in the air, it will fall to the ground. So when it comes time to stack blocks, you start at the ground and you go up. The robot, of course, had never fallen down or played the falling game. It had no concept of gravity because it had never been given the opportunity to learn through experience. And to be fair, it never occurred to its human programmers that this was even necessary. In 1956, the world's first conference on artificial intelligence was held at Dartmouth University in Hanover, New Hampshire. The people who attended were the kinds of people you might hope would attend such a gathering. Marvin Minsky from MIT was considered the father of AI. Claude Shannon from Bell Labs considered the father of information theory. And a handful of other brilliant thinkers. An army of journalists also attended. And at one point, they asked the scientists how long it would be before a machine would be able to think and act like a human. Twenty years, they said confidently. Yet, here we are, 65 years later, and we're not a whole lot closer than we were back then. Yes, AI is impressive, as is robotics. But they're impressive within certain carefully defined bounds. Now, why is that? I mean, look at all the brain power that's been tossed at this problem over the years. In addition to Minsky and Shannon and the others who attended the AI conference in Hanover, we have none other than Alan Turing and his famous Turing test. Imagine that you're placed in a room with a keyboard and a screen, and you're told to type a question to the person in the next room. You do, and for the next few minutes, you engage in dialogue with the person next door. But wait, there's a catch. The person next door may not be a person at all. They may be a computer. If you're unable to tell whether you're chatting with a human or a computer, then the computer that you're chatting with is deemed to have passed the Turing test. And we're still waiting for a machine to do it routinely. 
Another place where AI falls short is computer vision, which you will remember was a pretty important part of the robot that was trying to learn to stack blocks. After all, it had to be able to see the blocks. Well, there's a pretty famous test out there. You can find it by Googling dog or muffin. And this test involves a grid of photographs that are random pictures of blueberry muffins and chihuahua faces. Trust me on this. They're weirdly similar. But here's the deal. Without a whole lot of effort, a human can quickly figure out which ones are pictures of dogs and which ones are pictures of muffins. But computers, even unbelievably powerful machines like those that IBM and Google have unleashed on this exercise, struggle to score well on the test. What this brings us to is something called Polanyi's Paradox, which basically says that the way things work, like facial recognition, for example, is far beyond our ability to understand and therefore far beyond our current ability to program a computer to do. I mean, think about it. We can pretty much instantly recognize a friend halfway down the block, even when they have a mask covering their face or because of some vague way that they hold their hands or the way they walk. How do we do that? We don't really know. So how can we teach a computer to do it? And then, of course, there's language. One of my favorite quotes is from the comedian Groucho Marx. And if you ask a computer to explain it, it's guaranteed to set the computer on fire. It goes like this. Time flies like a river. Fruit flies like a banana. Now, that's funny, right? I mean, a human can hear or read that sentence, think about it, and then laugh at how silly it is because we have the ability to contextually parse it and understand that the word flies can be both a verb, time flies, and a noun, fruit flies. Can a computer figure that out? Not yet, at least not reliably and not without an enormous amount of human assistance and intervention. It turns out that when it comes to the kinds of jobs that computers can do well or not do well, we have to introduce another paradox called Moravec's paradox. Most people, if they think about it, believe that logical reasoning, the process of complex problem solving, requires far more computer power, whether it comes from a digital computer or the human brain, than straightforward neuromotor activities like standing or walking or dancing, tapping your feet to the rhythm of a song or stacking blocks. In fact, it's the opposite. Problem solving tends to be a logical sequence of if-then questions or decision gates that ultimately lead to an answer, straightforward and relatively easy. But problems that require neurosensory abilities are far more complicated to build into the skill set of even the most advanced robots because of Moravec. I mean, just think about it. The process of walking is an interrupted series of attempts to fall down, repeated over and over, but stopped at just the right moment each time by controlling your balance and throwing your other leg out there just in time to prevent you from falling on your face. Even the best robots can't do that without a human lurking in the corner with some kind of a remote control. And even then, they sometimes experience spectacular falls. Again, just think about it. 
we can go through the laborious task of programming a robot to dance to a song by the village people, and the result will be entertaining. But if you change that song to the Isley Brothers recording of Shout halfway through YMCA like they do at weddings, well, the people are going to quickly adapt and start dancing to something appropriately silly. But they better duck if there are any robots on the dance floor because there is going to be shrapnel. Ultimately, as much as we'd like to have autonomous robots doing things for and with us, we're just not there yet. It turns out that there are some jobs that AI-based machines just can't do as well as humans, at least not yet, and definitely not autonomously. For example, some abstract tasks or functions require skills that computers just can't figure out, challenges that require complex problem-solving capabilities or intuition or high degrees of creativity or persuasion abilities just aren't yet counted among the skills of the typical AI. Similarly, jobs that require a high degree of situational adaptability, think about our two-year-old nudging the block without realizing it, or visual recognition, or the ability to understand the nuances of language, or the ability to engage in an effective, convincing, in-person interaction, they tend to fall short. Now, that said, we are doing extraordinary things with AI. I mean, just think about what Alexa, Siri, and Google Home can do, and I apologize if I just set off all the devices in your house. Let me be clear here. Artificial intelligence and robotics are already in widespread use in contact centers, games, advertising, even in a lot of vertical industries like medicine, banking, and engineering. There's a hotel in Las Vegas where a robotic bartender will mix your drink and serve it to you. But if you like the idea of a robot being able to carry on a conversation with a human like Sonny did in iRobot with Bridget Moynihan and Will Smith, you're probably in for a long wait. As Marvin Minsky and Claude Shannon and their peers told the press back in 1956, it's going to be 20 years or so before we get there. So here, I'll let my colleague have the last word. Thank you for dropping in on the Natural Curiosity Project. We're glad you came by. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.